Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning again. Uh, I am Tony Eldrick. I'm one of the pastors here, and so I don't think I introduced myself this morning, but I'm glad that you are here and that you're able to come. Uh, we are finishing up our series in Ephesus. We started it a while ago. Uh, we took a little pause around Easter, but now we got back into it, and now we are finishing it up. We're going to be in chapter 6 today, starting in verse 10. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you might be able to withstand in the evil day, and, have, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word, and uh, as is our practice, would you repeat this with me? The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Hey, so have you ever had a time uh, where you found out that you were self-deluded, where you, you were full of confidence, you were pretty certain that you were right, you thought you had a great plan, everything was going to go right, and then all of a sudden you have a wake-up call and you realize you had gotten everything wrong. You know, one of those times where you thought that the uh, wrong thing was the right thing and then you missed the real thing. Uh, for me, the worst time that happened was my senior year at UCF. I was uh, one class left. I was married already, and uh, we had put in notice at our apartment. We we're going to be leaving Orlando, moving to Fort Lauderdale. I was going to get a job. Everything was going to move forward. Everything was great, and I just had this one class to take, and it was a pretty easy class, so I was feeling pretty good about it, and as it got towards the end of the summer, all I needed was a 30% on the final, and I was going to pass. So I just said, hey, this is pretty easy. I know what's going to happen. The final is going to take place in two days, one day multiple choice, one day short answer essay. They actually send you the list of the short answer and essay questions, right? They would actually send out 20 questions, and the ones in red font were the ones that were going to be on the test. So I said, hey, why do I even have to go to class? I don't. So I didn't. And I go, first day, multiple choice, sit down, feeling good. They hand it out. Christmas tree it. Done in five seconds, hand it in, strut out. They can look at these suckers, right? I mean, I got this, all I need is a 30. Go to the library, print out the questions for the short answer test, study those, I got those. Then I sit down, they hand out the essay portion of the exam, and I don't see anything on there that I studied. There was, there was nothing. My heart sank. 
as I realized I had studied the wrong questions. Because I wasn't in class, I didn't even understand the framework to try to guess on these questions. It was like, what's Barrett's five laws? Well, who's Barrett, right? Five laws of what? Accounting, marketing, gravity? I really have no idea. I made the wrong thing. I thought that the wrong thing was the right thing, and I missed the real thing. Somehow, by the grace of God or the mercy of my professor, I did pass with a glowing 32%. Yeah, it was the most successful Christmas tree ever, right? That was pretty amazing. And most of the time when we realize that we were horribly wrong in, in certain things, most of the time it's just kind of funny. I mean, it's painful in the moment, but then later you can laugh at it. I mean, even if I had failed, by this point, I think I would find it funny. You know, it's been 20 years. Maybe not, but, you know, I probably would have. And a lot of times, you know, it's, it's no big deal. But sometimes when we're wrong like that, when we miss the point, it's a big deal. And we can make big mistakes, long-lasting mistakes. And so Paul recognizes that. And as we uh, live our lives and as we try to engage in the spiritual battle, Paul wants to make sure that we're not fighting the wrong fight. He wants to make sure that we're not thinking that the wrong thing is the right thing and missing the real thing. Because there's a real threat. And Paul wants to make sure that we're not going to get distracted in that. Because when we get distracted, we miss the schemes of the devil. That's what Paul's, the phrase Paul uses in verse 11, the schemes of the devil. Because the devil is dedicated to confusing us so that we fight the wrong fight. He wants us to fight the wrong battles. He wants us to miss out on what's really going on. So Paul goes on then in verse 12, and he says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is trying to make sure that the Ephesians knew who the real enemy was. And even though it's not immediately clear, when he's talking about rulers and authorities, he's not talking about people. He's talking about spiritual realities, the devil, the demons, the evil spirits. He wants to make sure that we don't get this wrong. Because we do. We get it wrong a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're so angry all the time. Americans, right now, it's just an angry time. I saw something that said that 75% of Americans are either very angry or angry at, at the country. And that's not really a political statement. It's just to say that 75% of us are just low-grade angry or very angry all the time about the country. And that's just one thing to be angry about. I mean, there's plenty of other things. Right? You start a business, and you're trying to get your business going, and you've got a competitor going after you unethically, trying to destroy you. You're trying to move ahead in your career, and you've got somebody gunning for your job. Maybe, maybe it's your spouse, your husband, or your wife. Maybe, maybe he's just the loudest chewer ever. And it was cute at first, but now you're just angry every time he eats. You know, that, that happens. Or maybe it's worse. Maybe he's a jerk. Maybe you have a bully as an ex-spouse, ex-wife, ex-husband, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend. The relationship is over, but they're still trying to get at you and pick at you. Maybe it's your parents. They just don't understand. 
They're overbearing. Maybe it's your kids, and they're rebellious. Maybe you're angry at your boss, and he treats you unjustly, or you're angry at your employees because they're lazy. But we get angry all the time, and there are plenty of reasons to be angry. And it's easy to get to the point in life where there's just this slow background burn, and we're angry all the time, just at the surface, about to explode. And we can make the mistake to think that the people that we're angry with, that they're the real enemy. That that's the major problem in the world, is the people that are bothering us or that are trying to hurt us. And Paul says, though, that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. But in our experience as we live, as what we see and experience, it's very much flesh and blood. So maybe when you hear Paul say this, you think, yeah, well, Paul didn't know my ex-husband. He didn't know my ex-wife. Paul doesn't know my boss. He doesn't know my parents. He doesn't know my kids. Paul doesn't know what's, what's really going on in America right now. And we can have a tendency to think that we live in uniquely troubling times and that our enemies are uniquely evil. Beromita, look it. If anyone knows about wrestling with flesh and blood, it was Paul. He had a bad time a lot of the time. He was hated by the Jews. He was imprisoned by the Romans. He was beaten. He was stoned. He had backstabbers in his churches. He had people who lied and tried to destroy him. I mean, he had all sorts of people always against him. I mean, if anybody has the authority to speak about enemies, it was Paul. And the Ephesians, in Paul's day, they had problems too. They had difficulties. You may not know this, but around this time in church history, the Jews had a special standing with the Romans, so they had special religious protections. But by this point, they were getting fed up with the Christians. They were always trying to convert them and come into the synagogue, so they were annoyed. And so what they started doing was going to the Romans and saying, look, these Christians, they're not part of us. They wanted them to lose the special protection, and they did. And it's not like the Jews were uniquely bad because the Romans were pretty rough too because they wanted to persecute them. They wanted to confiscate their stuff. They wanted to hurt them. They had all sorts of reasons to, to be focused on their enemies. So Paul was writing as a man with enemies to a people with enemies. But his plea here is to not be distracted. Don't think that the wrong thing is the right thing. These people aren't the real enemy. The real enemy is the devil. And somehow, we need to be able to disengage from the fight against other people so we can focus on our fight against the devil and his evil spirits. But it's hard. Because we are all amped up and we're in fight mode all the time. In the reading of the law, part of it was Isaiah 59, 15. And that passage really hit me this week because I think it could be the motto of our day. It says this, truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. I mean, I think that just so describes what, what we're living in. Truth is lacking. There's almost no truth. And we're so caught up in fighting people and fighting that we feel like if we disengage from the fight, now we're going to become the prey and they're going to destroy us. So we have to fight the world the world's way. If they insult us, we insult them. If they destroy our people, we destroy their people. It reminds me from the scene from The Untouchables. It's an old movie. I don't know if 
How many of you guys have seen it? But in it, Kevin Costner is playing Elliot Ness, and he's trying to go after Al Capone. And there's this famous scene where he's talking to Sean Connery, who's playing the, the streetwise cop. And he's trying to ask him, how do I take down Capone? And so Sean Connery says to Kevin Costner, he says, what are you prepared to do? And Kevin Costner says, everything within the law. And Connery's character replies, and then what? Right? He says, and then what? He says, because you've got to be prepared to go all the way. Because they're going to go all the way. And then he says the famous line, right? He want to take down Capone. If he pulls out a knife, you pull out a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. He says, that's the Chicago way. And that's the way we feel like we have to fight now. And even in church circles, you're hearing people say things like, there's no more Mr. Nice Guy. We can't play nice anymore. We really got to go at it. We got we to fight it the way that they fight. We're all wrapped up in it, fighting each other the Chicago way, convinced we are doing the right thing and afraid that if we pull back, if we let up at all, if we pause the fight, then we will become the prey and the enemy will destroy us. But Paul is telling us that if we are fighting human enemies, we're fighting the wrong fight. Let me get a look at, it's not that there aren't enemies, it's not that there aren't real threats in this life, there are, Paul knew that, he experienced that. It's just that the people that we think are the enemy are really the pawns, the patsies, the toadies. They aren't the real enemy. The real enemy is working his schemes and is trying to distract us so that we don't put on the armor of God and start getting into the real fight. He wants us distracted, confidently studying the wrong questions in the library while he schemes to destroy us. And Paul knows that, so he continues to encourage us in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. The first thing that we need is the belt of truth. We live in a day where the truth is lacking. Lies are expected. Anxiety is high because people don't feel like there's anything solid that they can set their anchor into. Drew has talked a lot about expressive individuality, right? The idea that we get to define ourselves, that we're not beholden to the mandates of culture or, or tradition. And at first, it sounds pretty liberating. We get to define ourselves. You have freedom to do and to be what you want. But the reality is, is that it's horribly anxiety-inducing and crippling, we're told that we're supposed to define ourselves without any categories, limits, or definitions. And that's really horrible. It's impossible. I mean, just think about this. <clears throat> Sometime in the next few weeks, maybe even today, you're going to have this conversation. You're going to be talking maybe with your wife or with a friend. You're going to say, hey, do you want to go to lunch? You're like, yeah. You're going to say, where do you want to go? You say, I don't care. All right, well, you know. Taco Bell has a Mexican pizza back. Let's go there. Nah, I don't want tacos. Okay, then where do you want to go? I don't know, just not tacos. Right? And you just go on and on. And you're just trying to figure out lunch. We have a geographic limitation. We have only so many restaurants. And we can't figure that out. And the world wants us to define our very selves, our intimate you know, inner beings, without any definitions, any categories, any limitations. There's no truth in that. Truth is lacking. 
But in Christ, we have truth. We have the word of God. And it anchors us. In a post-truth world, we still have the truth. But it's not just the truth. We also need to wear the breastplate of righteousness. As individuals, we're supposed to care about holiness. And we're supposed to care about holiness as a community and as a church as well. And this is what Jonathan talked about a couple of weeks ago. That we're supposed to live in such a way that we don't give any foothold for the devil. But when we get the enemy wrong, we compromise. And we become open to the devil's schemes. We lower our guard to righteousness because we are so afraid that if we don't, we'll become the prey. We become worried about external threats, about other people, about the harm that they will come to our bodies or to our livelihoods. We become preoccupied with the physical dangers. But the devil doesn't need to destroy your body if he can destroy your character. In fact, he prefers to destroy your character. And that's what the communists knew. And they would take pastors and church leaders and they would torture them and try to break them, try to make them to compromise. They could have killed them. They had all the power to do it, and oftentimes they did. But what they preferred to do was to break the people and to send them back into the communities now compromised and broken. Why? Because then that discredits Jesus. Because nobody will believe our claims for truth if our righteousness is a lie. Some of the Christians did break. Some of them compromised. And it's easy for us when we hear kind of stories of people breaking, stories of people not rising to the occasion, not, not living up to the potential that they're supposed to, that we judge them harshly. Oftentimes we see that in movies and stories, and we think, man, these, these people were cowards. But in our day, it's all too easy to wave our hands and dismiss any talk of holiness as legalism, and to think that we're somehow enlightened in our sin. And so we get into this odd thing where we judge people who compromise under pressure, but we break in times of peace and safety. We look the other way on righteousness, and we discredit the truth of the gospel. There's been a wave of controversies over the past year, and even just this week, of churches and church leaders that got this wrong. They put all their enemy in fighting the wrong enemy. The devil schemed against them, and he got them to sin, and to fall into horrible sins, and he got other ones to cover it up. And it's horrible. People are walking away from the church because of it, because they don't believe the truth if our righteousness is a lie. The devil doesn't need to destroy our body if he can destroy our character. If we are going to stand in the evil day, we have to be people of truth and people of righteousness. Paul goes on in verse 15, he says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now look at that. If we read that too, too quickly, we just think that the shoes are the gospel of peace, but it's actually the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And some translations call it the preparation. See, Paul knows uh, that it is going to be hard to pull back from fighting the world the Chicago way. He knows that we are going to face consequences when we stop doing evil and fighting the world with worldly tactics. He knows that our fear is true. We will become the prey. And what does that mean? It means that we'll suffer. We have to be prepared for this. But how do we prepare for it? By entering into the gospel of peace. That Jesus came born of a virgin, fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life. 
but he lived as sheep among wolves. He faced all sorts of suffering and betrayal, even though he didn't need to, even though he didn't deserve it. And on the cross, he took our sins and he took our punishment. The very people who wanted him destroyed, he took on our sufferings for for us so that we could receive forgiveness and so we can forgive his righteousness. And around here, we call that entering the J-curve, that we embrace suffering and hardship going down with Jesus because Jesus embraced suffering and hardship for us with the hope of a resurrection. And when we really understand this and we really experience it, the truth prepares us for our own hardships. I think about a story of a, a pastor in communist Romania. I've read a lot about communists, but uh, that's why I come up twice. But his name is Richard Wombrandt, and he, he was in prison for 13 years. And uh, him and other believers, and they would, be, uh, they would try to preach the gospel, and the guards didn't like it. And so the guards would beat him when they were preaching to the other prisoners. And so he says kind of, Dismissively, he says, we were happy preaching and they were happy beating us, so everybody was happy. How do we prepare for that? Only if we prepare in the gospel of peace. We won't be able to face the trouble of disengaging from fighting the world the Chicago way and turn our attention to fighting the devil until we have been prepared by the gospel of peace. Paul continues in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. In those days, the Romans had two shields, and they had one shield that was, that was pretty large, and it had a covering over it. And the covering was because there were actually fiery darts by enemies that, that they would send at them. And it's pretty bad when your shield catches on fire, right? Like, you don't want that to happen in any time, really, and especially in a you know, ancient battle. So it would hit the shield and then the covering would extinguish the fiery darts. And so we are prepared by the gospel, but we also need faith. We need confidence that God is going to take care of things. That's what faith is. It's the confidence that God is true to his promises and his word. It's a confidence that if we become the prey by disengaging and fighting the world in order to battle Satan, that God will take care of us. And often write our assessment of the dangers of other people is correct. There are people who want to hurt you. We do live in dangerous times. These are some of the fiery darts that the devil throws at us. He wants us to be distracted by their fire so that we don't pay attention to his schemes. But he won't stop there. He's going to throw temptations and trials at you. He wants to break you. But we have confidence that God is true to his word. And he has really given us his Holy Spirit. And he's really going to preserve us and even reward us for obedience to him. Paul continues, and take the helmet of salvation. Christ didn't just die for us. He rose up from the dead. He defeated sin and death. We have salvation from the penalty of sin and the power of sin in our lives. Because Christ was resurrected and defeated uh, the devil, we too can join into that victory with the helmet of salvation. And then the final part of the armor is this. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And notice that with the word of God, we're getting our first offensive weapon. And when he's talking about that, it's not just referring to the Bible that we, that we read and meditate on. Obviously, that's good and we need to have that. But it's also the proclamation of God's word. 
And so he's saying that we are able to share the hope and truth of the gospel to others. And we can have some real victory. And we can have hope for them. So, we know who the real enemy is. We're given the armor of God. Now what? You know, we can hope to have some sort of amazing cosmic sci-fi battle. Some big sword fight with demons. That would be kind of exciting. But that's not really where Paul points us, unfortunately. You see verse 18. He says this, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So the culmination of the armor of God is prayer. And that can seem rather anticlimactic, but it's true. It's a big deal. It's important. We should be part of it. And why? I want you to see something. If you have your worship folders, look at the assurance of pardon at the, the very first verse. It's Isaiah 59, verse 17. And it says this, He, which means God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped, sorry, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And here's what I want you to see. The, the first two things, the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, those are all things that Paul mentions that we get as well, right, pretty explicitly. And, and he doesn't name zeal as something we receive, but he describes it for us. And he says that we should keep alert with all perseverance, and that's zeal, that's being zealous. But you know what he doesn't give us? Do you see it there? It's, it's, it's not something that we get to use the garments of vengeance. He keeps that for himself. We don't get that. And it's good. It's good that we don't get that. Because we don't have the wisdom to know how to handle that. We get to pray with faith and ask God to move our loving Father. And that's good because he knows what to do. He knows what's best, and he has the actual authority and power to do it. But oftentimes we lose our confidence in prayer because we don't receive what we ask for. Uh, it reminds me of the Santa Claus movies, you know, the ones with Tim Allen. Uh, we watch those every year as part of our little Christmas routine. And, and there's something that happens in there, uh, and the movie starts out, and, and there's always adults who don't believe in Santa Claus. And I think that that's weird because it clearly shows Tim Allen as Santa Claus giving adult presents at Christmas time. Right? I think at one point he might pull out a kayak or something, right? And I always thought, this is so unbelievable. This is weird because they're receiving presents that none of them paid for, right? I, I didn't pay for it. My wife didn't pay for it. I mean, they have to have all sorts of marriage problems, right? Because you think every Christmas somebody's overspending and lying to you. I mean... Maybe they just don't have any accountants in that universe. I don't know, but that would bother me. I want to know. And I always thought that that was unbelievable, but, but then they explain, the movie explains why the characters don't believe in Santa Claus. Because they had gifts that they, didn't, that they asked for that they didn't receive. For one of them, it was a mystery date game. 
For the other one, it was the Oscar Mayer weenie whistle. And the implication of it is this, right? That they were so disillusioned by not receiving the gift that they asked for one time that they became blind to all the gifts that they did receive every year. And we tend to think that prayer fails because we don't understand where we are in the story. We don't understand why we didn't get what we asked for. And we, we misplace ourselves in the story. We ask for something and we don't get it. And we believe that that signals that it's the end of the story. But it's not. It's not. A personal example of this um, each, I have four daughters, and each time they were born, I took time off work in order to be there, you know, at the beginning with Amber. I did that for every child except for one, and that was Bethany, our third. And it wasn't because I was a workaholic, it was because I didn't need to because I was already unemployed. <laughs> so that kind of solved the problem for me. But we had, uh, we had been living in Fort Lauderdale, and uh, then we kind of gave up on our dreams and our prayers to be in ministry, to be missionaries, and we moved to North Carolina, and we had a set of dreams and prayers there, and nothing was working out. Couldn't get a job. North Carolina is a great state, not so great when you have no money. It's just not as much fun. And every time I'd go to job interviews, and it was look good. I remember there was one just a few weeks before Bethany was born, and it was, it was like the ideal job. You know, not a lot of numbers, not a lot of details, perfect type of accounting job for me. Uh, I was going to get a company car. I mean, this thing was great. Benefits, amazing. Vacation times, amazing. And I said, this must be it. The Lord was saving this job for me. Then I didn't get it. I didn't get anything. It's like nine months. Prayers. Pleading, begging, I never got the job. And then eventually, we got a job in Winterhaven, and we moved down here. And it was great; we liked Winterhaven, but it wasn't the plan. And so when we moved down here, two big dreams that just died—things we'd been praying about—two of them, that we would be able to go be missionaries and be in ministry, and then that things would work out in North Carolina—just all died. For a long time, it felt like prayer doesn't really work, does it? And then as things progressed, right, things started to change. Obviously, you guys know some of our story. We did become missionaries. Now, now I am a pastor. I've gotten a ministry. God answered those prayers. But he didn't answer those prayers exactly on the timing that I wanted. He didn't answer the prayers in North Carolina. If I got that sweet, sweet job in North Carolina, I probably wouldn't have ever been here. In the real dreams and the real desires and the real prayers that we had, we wouldn't have answered those. And so sometimes we pray for things and we don't receive it, but it's really God taking a longer time to be faithful, to show his faithfulness, because he has the wisdom, he understands the plan, he can work things together. Sometimes we pray and we immediately get an answer, and we immediately get what we want, and those things are awesome, and you need to document those. And sometimes it takes years, it takes years to see something happen. And those times are awesome too. You need to document those. And then sometimes, if we're honest, there are times where we pray for things and we never see the answer. And we never live to see the answer. And there's a finality sometimes to those prayer requests and we think the story is over. 
but the story's not ours. And it reminds me of this, of this guy, William Leslie. He was, a, he was a missionary to the Congo. He was there in the early 1900s, and he was working. I'm sure he was praying for his work to succeed. And things kind of fizzled out for him, and he had to leave in 1929, and he thought that he was a failure. He thought his work didn't, didn't take root. It didn't happen the way he wanted to. He died in 1938. Never seen the answer to his prayers. He probably thought maybe prayer didn't work. Then in 2010, a couple of missionaries visited a village in Congo and just thinking that they were going to start some work there, maybe introduce the gospel to them. And instead, they were surprised to find that there was a thriving church there. In fact, the church was so large and so thriving that people were traveling so far to come to it that they were starting to send out church planters to other villages in the middle of the Congo. And they're like, what is this? How is this happening? And so as they were talking to them, they're piecing together that they were part of William's ministry. 80 years before, did God answer William's prayers? Yeah, he was faithful. But William never saw it. I mean, he might have saw it from heaven, but he didn't, he didn't see it in this life. And so we can't get the expectation even that we're going to see everything because we're in this gospel story, and the story's not about us. It's about him and his victories. And we can have faith and trust knowing that he's a loving father who cares for us and he promises victory. But we have to persevere. And that's why Paul says this in verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. We have to persevere because sometimes we don't see the answer immediately. Sometimes we don't see the answer at all. It's not ours to see it. But God is wise. And he knows how to work it. So what would it mean for you today to get in the fight? Where have you been fighting the wrong enemy? What would it take for you to suit up in the armor of God and start fighting the real enemy in prayer? In a couple of months, uh, we're going to have a praying life seminar. So I hope for you to feel like you, know, you don't really know what to do with prayer. I hope you... Make that a priority. Pay attention to the uh, back of the worship folder so you can be a part of that. But you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait to know what you're doing to do it. I mean, sometimes that's kind of what the enemy wants us to do, make us feel like we're bad at prayer so we don't pray. But it's okay. It's okay to be bad at prayer. Some prayer is better than no prayer. Always. So if you're not praying, here's a place to start. Maybe this week, just choose a time. Sometime in the morning, maybe at lunchtime or at evening, Set an alarm on your phone so you know it'll go off. And just try to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to try to spend at least five minutes in prayer this week, each day. Pray that you would suit up in the armor of God. Pray for your Christian friends in the church, that they would be witnesses and were able to maintain their righteousness and their testimony. Pray for the ministry of the church, that they'd be able to proclaim the truth. And pray for my church plant that's going to happen. If you want to use four of the five minutes praying for that, that's okay. Right, you have my permission to do so. But when you realize who the real enemy is, there's no shortage of things to pray about. And I think if you try that, if you're somebody who's, who's not really praying, and you just said, hey, I'm going to spend five minutes a day, I think that even this week, you'll start to see some big changes in your life. So let's remember who the real enemy is. Let's get prepared in our armor, and let's get to fighting in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you equip us for battle. We thank you that you're more powerful than the devil, that as we go to fight against him, it's not an even match. You have guaranteed victory and success. Pray, Lord, that you would keep us as people of the truth. Keep us as people who live righteous lives and take our holiness seriously so that our testimony of the truth will be believable. Help us to be prepared for the hardships and help us to be equipped for, for fighting the real enemy the right way. I pray, Lord, that as we engage in prayer and we engage in this fight, Lord, I pray that you would give us some quick, obvious answers to prayers to encourage us in our prayer life. Father, help us to really understand and believe, to have a shield of faith, believing that you're hearing our prayers and that you're moving based on them and that you're having victory. Help us to trust in your wisdom and in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope that you uh, go here from here and engage in the fight with the devil, and I hope that you have a lot of success, but also I want you to know that part of the benediction is that when you go and you engage in that, that he is with you. And when you try to engage in that and you fail and you mess up and you sin, he's also still with you and he loves you. And as adopted children of God, he always loves you. And when our heavenly father thinks about you, it's with joy in his heart and a smile on his face. Adopted children of God, receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen.